and welcome to another episode of Once Upon a Nightmare. I am your host Lorraine and this week I am going to take you back to the year 1984. This is going to a place where no adult should ever go because they won't leave it and where children have completely lost their shit. This is Children of the Corn. Every child is afraid of the dark, the unknown, the nightmare. In Gatlin, Nebraska, that nightmare is in the corn. Stephen King's Children of the Corn. Stephen King, the author of Carrie, The Shining, The Dead Zone, and Christine, an adult nightmare. Children of the Corn. I'm here, Lord! I'm ready! Stephen King's Children of the Corn, an adult nightmare. It was a good year for horror movies, but if you're not really into your horror, especially your 80s horror, I kind of uh, would recommend go and watch American Horror Story 1984. It was a good season. I loved it. Very 80s, kind of like, you know, Friday the 13th-esque because it was all in a camp and, you know, you got a bit of true crime in there and, you know, they all look like they're in the 80s. I mean, it's really good and I'd, I'd recommend going and see that. But like, you know, if you do want to actually go and check out some horror films from the 80s, that was the year that gave us one of the best horror icons. Actually, he is the best horror icon of all time for me. And that is Mr. Freddy Krueger. And that was the beginning of a Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. It's such a great film. It's a, I'm going through the franchise at the moment. Uh, obviously, the first one and the third one, they're kind of always known as the better ones. So I'm going to kind of make my way through it just to see how I feel about the others. We also had our cuddly cute friends in Gremlins. We had not so cuddly Jason in Friday the 13th, the final chapter. I always forget with that film, with uh, that franchise, how quickly they got out quite a few films because obviously a lot of the others were later on in the other franchises. But this one, um, they kind of got a, quite a lot in at the beginning. And of course, we had Drew Barrymore, gorgeous little innocent Drew Barrymore as Firestarter. These were a great bunch of movies, although Friday the 13th, the final chapter, I would have to watch that again. So if you're not got a feel for 1980, 1980s horror... I go back and check out some of them just to kind of get an idea of what happened. But if you're one of those people, which I know a few, that they don't want to watch films that are older than 2000, then check out American Horror Story 1984, and that will give you a bit of a feel for it. It's not as good as the films, so go back to them. But anyway, but also in that year was, of course, Children of the Corn. Children of the Corn was directed by Fritz Kurs, and this was actually his first directorial debut. It was based on a short story by Stephen King, and this was actually first published in Penthouse Magazine back in 1984. Penthouse Magazine, for any of you that don't know, was kind of like that one that, oh, what's his name? Hugh Hefner did, but I can't remember the name of it. Playboy. Um, so yeah, so of course, people bought the magazines for the stories, not the pictures. Um, it was adapted into a screenplay by George Goldsmith. It is an 18 runs for an hour and a half and had a small budget of $800,000 and made just over $14.5 million worldwide. Now, this film is an 18. And when I was watching it, I was like, 
it really doesn't need to be an 18. A 15 would have done. But then I think to myself, okay, it was the 80s. And children back in the 80s, basically it was harder to get films to rent. Like if you wanted to see a 15 or an 18 and you weren't that age, you had to get someone to get it for you. You then had to get someone's parent to allow you to watch it. So while I feel this should be a 15, like obviously anyone could probably watch it now because things are so much easier to look at. I think it was good probably make it as an 18 because, you know, kids can get things in their head. And I'm not I'm not one of these people, obviously, that blames movies for anything. Um, but I think it was a good idea <laughs> because the kids in this are fucking terrifying. So King did actually write a screenplay for this film, but it was rejected. Like if you have seen the film The Shining also, he wasn't a part of that. And it's been well known that he wasn't a fan of it. And you also sometimes think that if the person wrote the book, why aren't they doing the screenplay? Who knows the characters better than the creator? I mean, but I suppose I hear a lot of people always saying things like the book is better than the film. I'm not a big reader. Um, I would just read many true crime. But I suppose then if you had the person that wrote the book, would that cause a lot of clashes on set because they'd obviously want it their way? But I was listening to an episode recently from Two Chicks and a Horror Flick, and they did an episode on The Shining, and their opinions of it were completely different to mine, but that's great. That's what I love about listening to podcasts is, you know, everyone can have a different opinion, and that's what makes it interesting. But they said maybe there should be a remake, and I kind of agree with them, but I'd like King, only if King did it, because I would like to see what his version would be. And because obviously he wasn't happy with the original, he could do it his own way, but I would only probably want one if he did it. But it would be very difficult to maybe, you know, fill that role of Jack Nicholson's role. Maybe, obviously, the obvious thing is Christian Slayer, because he's so like him. But then, obviously, that's just kind of repeating what he does. So, yeah, let's let's see will they ever do one. I'm actually surprised they haven't, because, like, obviously, especially with horror films, but films in general, it's like remake central. Everything's a bloody remake. But anyway, this film starred two very well-known 80s actors at the time, um, they were more known personally for me for work that came after this film. So one of them is Linda Hamilton. She plays Vicky. And of course, we know her for her role as Sarah Connor in the Terminator films. And while this film did come out in 1984, as did Terminator, the first Terminator film, great film, by the way, it was after. And then there's Peter Hornton and he plays Bird. And he became quite known again for me in the 1987 role as Gary Shepard in a TV show called 30-something. I really enjoyed this show and had a bit of a crush on him at the time. But that's definitely one I'd love to watch again at some point. So this couple are travelling through Nebraska and they have an accident which involves, unfortunately, a young boy. They then head to the nearest town to try and find some help, obviously to let people know what's happened. But unfortunately for them, this town is now overrun by a bunch of kids who have murdered all the adults. Its main leader is a is a boy called Isaac, and he's played by John Franklin. He is the leader of a religious cult who believes anyone who's not a child should be killed for like this corn god demon thing. And he does this with the help of a right-hand maniac, because of course everyone needs a right-hand maniac. And he is played by Courtney Gaines, and his name is Malachi. Honestly, that kid is insane. He's probably the most crazy out of all. But like most things, people want more power. And of course, this is what happens between Malachi and him and Isaac kind of go head to head. But also while this couple are trying to get out of this town without being murdered. But with the help of two, two nice little kids, which I will talk about in a minute. 
So as this film starts, it is a pretty basic beginning. It's a small town in the arse end of nowhere. People are just having breakfast in this diner. And then all the adults are either poisoned, they have their throat slit, stabbed, some get a bit of both. And we are obviously not quite sure why at the moment, but there is this weird man-child lurking about, looking in the windows with his black hat and his very outdated clothes. Honestly, the look he gives is really messed up. And then we get into it all quite quickly here. We know straight off the bat that these kids have been brainwashed into doing this because there's so many of them and it would be very unlikely that a bunch of children would just all of a sudden want to go around killing people. There are a couple that, you know, you don't like what's happened here, as in these two little kids. Well, there's three actually that um, you can think of, but in general, they all seem pretty okay to kind of go along with it. I think the whole kid thing hits home a bit more of me today than it did when I first saw this. Like, obviously, I saw this film back in the 80s, and it was a time where you didn't really fear children. Yes, we had the bullies at school. Like, while I had them in my area, I'm sure they're, you know, people have had worse experience, but it wasn't so vicious for me as it as it is kind of today and what I've seen actually over the past, maybe especially since social media and stuff like that. But in general, it was fine. But I feel like the attitudes a lot have changed today. There are some scary groups around um, my area and I feel they just re react and they don't seem to think or care about consequences. Like when we see a film such as Eden Lake, when I was watching that, I was like, this doesn't seem a stretch to me. I mean, it was, I won't watch that film again because it was so it did kind of mess with my head a little bit, but it didn't seem that it couldn't happen. And I think in the 80s, the thought of this happening was just so out of the realm of possibility because kids just didn't go around murdering whole towns. You know, obviously that doesn't happen today, but I just don't think I'd be as shocked today as I was when I saw this. It is a bit weird how no one has discovered this feral bunch. What happened to the post or the deliveries coming in? Family members that didn't live there, like where, where's my sister, where's my brother? Before Vicky and Burke get there, it's been about three years since these murders happen. And how can this place have simply been forgotten about? Because while it kind of is off the beaten track, it's not that far. There was a town, I think, I think it was 19 miles away or something. So it's not like that far away. And obviously people would have stopped bringing certain things that you can't grow yourself. We see that the signs to this place don't really get you there with ease. So maybe people kind of gave up trying. But then you think people that lived kind of that close, like 20 miles away, they'd know the town. They'd know the town. And the delivery people know the town. But I try not to take the whole plot hole route here. But it is really hard with this film not to do that. But I'm trying, trying, trying to stay away from that. So who is the main culprit of it all? Well, as I mentioned the first two. But there's kind of two, three people if you include this crazy girl in a church who I'm going to mention in a bit. But let's discuss Isaac. Oh, oh, Isaac. The actor himself, he was actually 23 when he played the role, but he has um, something called GHD, growth hormone deficiency. And as you see in the film, he looks very young, but he also has quite a very high-pitched voice. And I think he was actually really good casting because while he does look very childlike, he sounds childlike, he also has a bit of an older look about him. It's quite strange. You know, sometimes when you meet like kids, they can be so young and you're like, there's a, like an old soul element to them. And that's kind of what, what he likes. So I think that really works well here. It's weird, but he looks younger while looking older, if you get me. So when he speaks, he does so in a very preacher-esque way. He's an evil priest. He's a boy priest who came to Gatlin and he started this cult. He speaks now for a demon entity. 
it is convenient that only this demon will speak to him and tells only him what to do, which is always really handy when you're the leader of a cult. This entity is referred to as he who walks behind the rose. He has managed to secure himself the right-hand man, Malachi, who is willing, if not a little too willing, to cut people up, a human sacrifice, if you will, for the demon. Honestly, he's really, really willing. When we meet Vicky and Bert as they drive through the countryside, I have to admit, I was not a fan of Bert nearly the whole way through it. He's a bit too snappy for me. He snaps at Vicky so many times. And then he does that whole thing, like, you know, when you see people and they like snap at people and then they apologize straight after. And, you know, she kind of gives him a look like there's such arrogance to him. And we know that Bert is a man of science and he really does like any like real emotion. And he's kind of it's like he thinks he fucking knows it all. He really does my head in. And he's off to become a doctor and that is his focus. And even when Vicky makes a move on him, like he, they're, they're in a motel room and she's kind of like, you know, trying to get some. He's just like, no. We have plans, so it's like all sticking to the rules. Like Religion, of course, is a huge aspect of this film, and in the end, it will be the demise of many. We hear from Job that uh, this is one of the little boys played by Robbie Kiger that we do like. He tells us how Isaac is a child preacher. I don't know such such a thing existed like a child preacher, but this this boy is welcomed into the community. And when you're so extreme in religion... I'm not a religious person and I, you know, I don't care if people are religious, it doesn't bother me, but I'm obviously not a fan of the extreme views. I think if you're religious, you're religious, fine, but don't push it on other people, you know, but especially people who, so when it comes to your extreme people in religion, especially people who have the same views as you, you kind of welcome them in with open arms. Their willingness to accept his extreme brand of Christianity allowed him to do his bidding. And of course the kids, you know, they're a lot easier to control. So he had to get rid of the adults to do his work and was able to convince the kids that his plan was the right right way to do things. There are, as mentioned, a few kids who weren't happy with the new setup because Isaac, Isaac's new way is very strict. So once the adults are killed, we see them, they kind of change how they dress. It's very outdated. There's no joy. There's no longer any joy. And it's very backwards. And basically everything fun is outlawed. No music, no games, no playing. You know, things things kids want to do, they can. And this is especially because they do try some of them, but this is especially because of Malachi. He's such a snitch and he loves nothing better than to catch the kids in the act, having fun and then running along to tell Isaac. Honestly, I, I hate this guy so much. And he talks in um a very, I don't know, is it biblical way? It's like the whole way that they that Isaac and Malachi kind of interact is. And it's it's a bit funny sometimes because they're kids. So it's very over the top and it's very dramatic. So you pretty much hate some kids more than others. But, you know, the kids you really do like are one is Job, who I've mentioned. And then his little sister, Sarah, who's played by um, Anna Marie McEnvoy. And they just want to be kids. They're not part of this, but obviously they're going along for survival. Plus Sarah, apparently she can see things. And, you know, Isaac knows this and she has these visions and you see it in the drawings. You see this at the beginning. We do, as I said, see them play, but they have to keep it in secret. Uh, Job, though, he is very, I think he's probably about six or seven, maybe eight, but he's such an old soul. He's such an old soul. He's so unbelievably cute. And he's like kind of a bit of a cockiness about him, and, but in a nice way, you know, and we need him to help any, you know, future adults that may land in Gatlin. Also, there's another young boy called Joseph. We like Joseph. And with the help of Job and Sarah, again, because they're the ones who are, you know, realizing that this isn't right and they want things back the way they were. 
he tries to escape through the cornfields. Now, the cornfields have, like, you sometimes see the corn move when there's no one there. There's noise and stuff like that. So you sense that there's something in here. So it's quite a brave thing for him to do to try and run and get away from this because he knows that there's danger in there. And plus, people are lurking at every turn. He doesn't know who's after him. But the setting we see, it is beautiful. We see plenty of it, but the corn, you know, it, it also towers over everybody. So that's what makes it even more scary because even, I think, it's probably a good six foot something because even when Malachi's in it, he's quite tall. You don't really see them. So they've also got that. And that would make it harder to find your way out because you can't see. So you've, you know, you've got to kind of hope for the best, really. And bless him, he's making a run for it with his little suitcase. And he gets so close. But Malachi, of course, is there and gets him and stabs him. Or it's it's more of a it's more of a slashy thing, I think he does, than stabbing. And this is what brings the chain of events that leads to Vicky and Bert then ending up in Gatlin. So up until now, it's just been all the children, and we've seen Vicky and Bert on the road. So, you know, they don't know what's going on, and the kids are doing their own thing, but this changes all that. So Joseph actually, when he did get slashed, he wasn't actually that far from the road because he he goes into the road and he gets hit and they want to do the right thing, let people know. Because obviously this is someone's son as far as they're concerned. But that impact of the car, they, they hit him head on. Honestly, it's brutal. I'm surprised he didn't just like snap in half. Bert was looking at a map, which he shouldn't have been doing. But of course, Bert being Bert and his controlling way, he couldn't just leave it to Vicky to look. But the way he was leaning over to look at it, it was ridiculous. And you knew something was going to happen, but you obviously didn't fully know what. He's such a control freak. And Joseph didn't stand a chance. And to be honest, this feels like, this felt to me like the most brutal kill of them all. And it was, it was an accident. It wasn't intentional, the car. But he was already probably dead. Just, you know, he wouldn't have lasted much longer anyway. So after they've, you know, they've picked him up and they wrap him up and they put him in the boot, they do find a garage. Now, this is actually run by an adult. So there is an adult there. And to be fair to this guy, he doesn't try and send them there. He tries to, I mean, he's a bit weird, but he encourages them to go. And he's been left alone. And because apparently he has some use, he has oil and all this kind of stuff. But Malachi, this shows another sign of when we see Malachi kind of losing his plot and he has real no respect for what Isaac's doing. It's about what he wants. And he kills him. And this man's got a dog and he kills a dog. Why'd you have to kill the dog? Rookie mistake. And you feel like his death was pointless as he he kept to himself. He agreed to play the part that he had to. And but Malachi, he just he's got such a thirst for it. You can see so any opportunity to kill. But with this kill, we never really see them. And it's kind of like a lot of the kills with the with the dog being killed. We see his scarf. We don't see the dead dog. And with the owner, when he is killed, we see his arm. When Joseph is killed, we just see the splatter of blood. So. We do, at the start in the diner, see the kills. And while it's brutal, it's not something really over the top that you have to look away from. So it's it's a vicious film because obviously the content of what these kids is doing is absolutely diabolical. But the actual acts, they're very tame, you know? So you kind of have to leave it up to your imagination. But they are very tame. So as well, they're poisoned in the diner. So they're they're helpless. They can't really do anything. So there's not a lot of fighting and pushing around. There's a little bit, but nothing too over the top. And it's all very easy, basically. So as they leave this garage, we do then get to see more and more of the area. Well, while some is especially scary, 
they do keep ending up in these cornfields and you know why are these cornfields so lovely it's so remote and like they've obviously got these signs to point them to get them into these places and it's obviously to deter them to make them leave because they're not getting anywhere and I actually I put it on Twitter that I was watching this and um this girl who hosts a podcast called um this girl who hosts a podcast called Yield Crime Podcast uh, I think it's Lindsay that does all the work on there but she is with her sister on it so obviously they both this probably goes for both of them the the cafe there had been abandoned but it's still there the house where it was filmed is apparently still there and even survived as um a flood and her mother went to the school but it was eventually torn down and then there was a park put there and she played in that so I kind of thought it was nice because the, it's you know their hometown where a lot of the film was done it's kind of nice to get those facts from people that were actually there because sometimes you can go online and you can get um uh, but you can get pictures and updates and stuff of what's happened. And I like doing that. I think it's kind of cool to see it. So when they do get to Gatland, it is very clear, obviously, that something's not right. Because when they're there, first of all, they don't really see anyone. The buildings are kind of look like, you know, they've got corn kind of sticking out. And then when they do see people, it's only kids. And, you know, Vicky, of course, is the voice of reason. She wants to get out there. But Bert has to have his way and go looking, which, is of course, is a massive mistake. And... They also encounter the children, Sarah, and obviously she's nice. And I think from seeing Sarah, it kind of lulls them almost into a false sense of security because she's this nice kid. And why wouldn't she be? And But then again, we see Bert and his annoying ways because he's obviously trying to get questions. Where's your parents? Where is everyone? And she's not answering quick enough for him. And she's about five. And he just doesn't have any patience with her. And he's just kind of very snappy with her too. And he just goes off. I'll go look around. You stay here and leaves her with Vicky. And it's really wrong that he does this because obviously there's something not right. And he just goes. And I'll be honest, you know, he just does my head in. He's, and he's got no patience for anything. After he leaves, this is when the shit really hits the fan and it all kind of goes really downhill from here. And we then get the full extent. I mean, we've seen what these kids can do, but it's like obviously three years later, so we get the full extent of what's going on. There is a lot of watching from the point of view of whatever kid is actually seeing them. It's probably Psycho Malachi. And there's a build-up. So you're kind of wondering, like, why why is the movement so very slow? We see bursts every now and again, but there's not many. And they go to this house where Vicky is now alone with Sarah, and again, it's a very slow, sneaky job of creeping up on her. And, you know, she hears a creak. She assumes it's Bert has come back. And as she looks downstairs, she can see shadows. And it's them just coming in. And Malachi is oh, he's such a psycho. He's loving it. He is loving. It's not just the kill for him. He's loving the terror. He loves people being scared of him. And he just says to her with kind of this weird freaking Malachi grin face that you want to punch. We want to give you peace, you know? And then this is where they dash up the stairs. They've got weapons and they're such deadly weapons. She's chased and they do get her, but the way they carry her off, it's so brutal because there's quite a few of them. So obviously she can't fight them off and they, they're literally carrying her. Her feet aren't even touching the ground. And, but a lot of scenes in this film when the kind of bad stuff is happening we get that really Omen-esque creepy music playing in the background. Now, obviously, the Omen is based on religion too, so it's kind of maybe a theme with that kind of song, you know, with the kind of oh, voices going on. Yeah, it sounds exactly like that. And it really adds to it. And 
they actually do a really good job in this film with the music. That's one thing I will say. It's probably the best thing for me is the use of music in in this film to to build up the tension. And also a lot of the POV shots, like I do enjoy those. I think, you know, having someone watching you when you don't know they're watching you must be, obviously you don't know, so you're not scared. But when they're in the surroundings, they must realize that there's the potential of something bad going to happen. But when they do all their bad stuff, there is a lot of music and it just makes it that bit more terrifying. And it was composed and conducted and arranged by a Jonathan Ellis and apparently this film was his first to compose. So that's really impressive that he managed to achieve such such intensity for a first film. So, of course, after Vicky is taken, they bring her to Isaac and she's going to be sacrificed. And it's becoming more and more apparent now, as we see going on, that Malachi and Isaac, they're not exactly on the same page. Malachi killed Joseph and the mechanic and he wasn't permitted to. He's doing his own thing now. He's going, he's going rogue, basically. And... The, the the sacrifices are, I think they're supposed to have purpose, basically. Um, as in our Vicky, they kind of raise her up in this crucifixion-style way. And, oh, my God, these kids, they're, like, all looking up. Like, the view is from her looking down, and they're, like, shouting, kill, 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 kill. And it's they've just completely lost the plot here. But as I mentioned, there were three main culprits here. We Isaac and Malachi are our obvious ones. But then we have Rachel, who is played by Julie Madalena. <laughs> she is nuts she's like on the level of the other two although with Isaac I do while he's batshit crazy and I obviously don't agree with cults with him you feel like he actually has a purpose that he actually feels like he's doing this for a reason and in his head it's the right thing to do like it's not obviously but you know to him there whereas with Rachel and Malachi I just feel like they want to mess things up kill people and just like it's it's more about that than what's what the real purpose if purpose is if you get me so the scene with her and the other kids it's in a church and this is actually kind of one of my favorites and this is where I do like Bert he kind of redeems himself and here for me he speaks to them like the way he because he goes in here to interrupt this thing that they're doing they're kind of making a cut on some lads um chest but he kind of talks to them like what they are a naughty bunch of kids like who do they think they are for the way they're carrying on and he's kind of saying to them what you want to say and they're performing this ritual and the kids you can tell the kids now a lot of them this is when you really see that a lot of them are out of their depth and you can tell because they're just sat there and they've got really no idea what's going on whereas Rachel's different so Rachel does have this extremely sadistic side and we see this when she tells the so um uh Bert's character kind of takes her down but then she gets the upper hand again and she tells the child she's like go get Isaac go get Isaac and then she went no and she just kind of looks in this really freaking sinister way and the way her face changes she's like bring Malachi and all the kids go <gasps> like that because she knows that Isaac will come in and just talk to him but she knows that Malachi will fuck him up you know, and she knows what Malachi is capable of. And the fact that she wants him to do this shows what a sick, twisted bitch she actually is. So in this scene, I love how Bert gets the Bible. So he grabs the Bible and basically, like with a lot of religions, he's like, they're all taking shit from it. And he's like, are you rewriting the whole thing or just the parts that suit your needs? 
And I do feel like this is kind of the way with um, some religions, like especially for me, like I, I went to Catholic school in the West of Ireland and the hypocrisy, it's another level. You know, people take things out of the, um, the whatever they're practicing, but they don't do it all. And then they condemn people for not following certain parts of it. So like, you know, take what you want, do what you want, but you know, stay away from other people. Anyway, so he calls them out and he he actually does it later on too, which is really good. And it's true. You you do feel that. You're like, why are you taking this part and not the other part? So here's the thing. So when the kids turn 19, they become sacrificed because you're no longer classed as a, as a child. I thought it was 18 though. But anyway, so there's this character Amos and you can tell with him as well that he's far gone and he's old enough for what they call the passing and joining the God in the cornfields. But as well, there's this part of me is like, they're going to run out of people. Or does Isaac then feel he could just move on to another town? Is that his thing? Because obviously these kids are all going to reach 18, 19 at some point. And then what's he supposed to do? Because that's one thing about this film. There's no signs of any kind of like sexual behavior. You never get that vibe from it, which is obviously really good because I think when you do that, it kind of takes it to a different place, doesn't it? But yeah, you never get a feeling that any of these kids are having sex. So like, how are they going to you know, make more children. So Bert does manage to escape the church and these kids, you know, they, they kind of go after him and, you know, he's struggling to run because he has been stabbed. And there's this word they all use, outlander, as they're shouting after him. And Bert is then surrounded again by all these kids. And you're kind of like thinking, why don't you just grab him, get out ever, ever. But it's like, they're just, it's like they never know what to do unless Malachi basically tells them what to do. And as he shouts Outlander, all the kids then turn to Malachi because Malachi has spoken. You know, if Malachi speaks, you fucking listen. Like, do you know what I mean? And as he does that, Malachi then has this, they all look to him. So he's he's obviously able to get away. But it's the look on Malachi's face, it's so great because he's like, it's almost like he's saying, why are you looking at me, you idiots? So it's like he wants all this, you know, this, everyone to to, to turn to him, to want him. He's the leader. He's the power. But when they do it kind of fucks things up because now uh, Bert's been able to get away. Um, but yeah, it just, that scene kind of makes you laugh. And, and I think this is another scene again, where Malachi needs to be in control and he needs to show um, who he really is, because if he didn't care about all that, I think he would ensure that this, this guy was caught, but he just wants to be the man, the man that caught the adult, not because he got him, if you get what I mean, he's just so annoying. Anyway, for Bert, Luckily, he sees little Job who brings him to a safe haven so he can, you know, sort himself out and then to go get Vicky. But Malachi, if possible, has, you know, he's lost his shit even more at this stage. And it kind of shows in the next scene. I'm going to put a little clip in so you can hear like this religious babble to get kind of an idea from, from uh, what Isaac does. It's, it's some end of the world shit here. Anyway, have a little, have a little listen to this. We must sacrifice them both tonight. Amos will satisfy him. We need the woman. She'll bring the man to us. No. He must be taken without her. We cannot remove her from this place. It is holy. We will bring the Lord two by using one. Not blaspheme, Malachi. You know not the laws. He speaks them only to me. I think not, Isaac. You are the one who's lost favor with them. He's the God of blood and sacrifice, not ceremony. Ah! Sacrilege! Down on your knees, heretic! Shut your mouth, Isaac. You've grown prideful apart from us! He who walks behind the rose will decide your fate. 
you just sit there, seize him, punish him, cut him down, I command you. I am the word and the giver of his laws. Disobedience to me is disobedience to him. Do it now or your punishment shall be a thousand times, a thousand deaths, each more horrible than the last. They are tired of your talk, Isaac. I've shown them what I can do. Cut the woman down. Put Isaac in her place. Yeah, we will see how the Lord favors you. No, you dare oh, not, you blaspheme. He will punish you. The jaws of hell will devour you. All of you. No. So Isaac completely lost his ship. Malachi has now taken over, as you can see from that. Um, and it's actually really quite funny watching them argue because John Franklin, I have to say, he's great in this role. He nails the essence of who this guy is. He really does. And you really believe he believes what he's doing is right. He is the chosen one. I mean, there are times you just want to slap the shit out of him to tell him just to shut the fuck up. But at the same time, he's really scary. And, you know, at time, like when watching this, I didn't know that he was actually 23. I did think he was a child. But again, that's what works here because he can be a bit more commanding because he's got that, like, experience of being a bit older in real life but either way the guy is convincing but the worst thing about this film oh my god was the special effects and to be honest with you while it was the 80s and I I know the 80s obviously weren't as, weren't as advanced as they are today but it could have been so much better and you know we had films at this stage we had Star Wars for god's sake we had Superman and what they did was so much better and I mean, I'm not comparing Children of the Corn to Star Wars or Superman, but the technology was obviously there to do better. And it felt like it was just laziness or I don't know, maybe they forgot that they needed special effects and the budget was pretty much shot. So they got one of their kids to do something. I don't know, but it's obviously it's, it's so bad and it kind of ruins the ending because there is this big buildup. And, you know, we, the sacrificial shit, Malachi and uh, Isaac are arguing, are Bert and Vicky going to get away? So we do see a lot going on, but then these special effects come along and you're just like, oh, okay, okay. So the first real bag special effects is they've now tied Isaac up. He's in the, like a crucifixion star. And this, he's like giving it loads, shouting and screaming some babble. And this weird kind of yellow swarm of bees. It, it's not bees, but it looks like a big bunch of bees. Then they turn into red bees and they look like they're covered in some corn syrup. And that's what makes them red. And it's engul uh, engulfing Isaac then. It kind of goes up his legs and all that kind of stuff. And oh, it's, it's so bad. Um, and then we have Bert he's left with all these kids and again they could just go for him and they don't and because of their like yeah they're insane and they've chased him and they're going crazy but there's like I said it's three years later so I feel like the reason they don't go so full whole hog sometimes whole hog full hog is because they know it's all bullshit Malachi isn't giving up though he wants to be top dog and with Isaac out of the way you know he kind of sees his chance here or does he the kids start taking on board what Bert is saying, you know, because he's like, you know, basically this is all bullshit. And they're kind of looking at him like as if, huh? And, you know, 
maybe they missed the guidance of their parents. You know, it might have been fun for a while when you, you know, had that freedom. But kids like routine. They like security. And they haven't got any of that now. You know, we all loved it when our parents went out when we were kids. But as much as we like wanted to do our own thing, they came back. They made you dinner. They paid the bills. They bought you clothes. Like, do you know what I mean? So, you, you know, you you need your parents. So, you know, Bert is probably the most adult reasoning they've had in a really long time. And by the way they reacted, it looked like they really, really welcomed it. And and this is because they all turn so quickly. You know, they really do. And they run off with Vicky and Bert. And it also makes me wonder, what the frick did Isaac say to them at the very beginning to make them turn so, you know, easy against all their parents? Like, I can understand if you got a few to do it, but everyone. So what did he say? And you know, maybe they just needed a leader and maybe that can be anyone. And now it's Burr. You know, they just want guidance. Plus they've seen Isaac and Malachi, Malachi bickering and they just like probably copped on that it's just a power play and they're kind of just the pawns as well. So, you know, Isaac then comes back as this weird demon thing that looks like he's covered in soot and, you know, everyone's like, fuck this, I'm off. And they all like leg it. But, you know, the only thing to do obviously here is to blow up the area, blow up the fields. And of course, this is where we get more of those amazing special effects. And oh God, so they're all looking onto it and they've blown it up and there's like this red stuff shooting into the air from the field. But I think what really made it for me that really was made it like this is ridiculous is you see this kind of demon face in the red. Honestly, the special effects, it let it down so much. I almost feel like they could have done the whole sacrifice thing with maybe like if they just got a demon to come there, like an actual, I don't know, demon person or something. I don't know. But the special effects just completely, completely ruined it. Anyway, it pretty much ends at this stage and Rachel's not given up. She tries to kill them one time and uh, she she fails. But then it just kind of ends. You know, we've got Vicky, Bert, Job and Sarah. They they take the kids and, you know, you just don't really know what happened. I mean, I haven't watched the second one, so I don't know what goes on from there, but you don't know what happens to the rest of the kids. And they just kind of, they just kind of leave. So, and it's almost like they, um, they, they take these kids and they're going to be their kids. Like, are they going to adopt these kids or something? Um, you know, as mentioned, I haven't read the book, uh, well, the, the short story and it kind of makes me wonder what King would have done. Would there have been more story? Because, while this film, apart from the special effects, it is an okay watch and I'd recommend it. I feel like we needed more of a backstory. Obviously, we get a little bit about Isaac, but we never really see how Isaac gets the children to go along with his plan. And a big part of this film is quite drawn out. It feels like it's drawn out getting Vicky and Burke to Gatlin. And then it feels drawn out with the whole cat and mouse hunting thing. It kind of goes on quite a long time. And, you know, when trying to capture Vicky and Burke, I keep on wanting to say Burke and Ernie. But overall, not a bad movie. I probably wouldn't watch it again. I am interested to see the other ones because I'm kind of on a bit of a franchise high at the moment. I've got like this mini project coming on with um, Stuart from British Murders. We're doing a bit of a franchise thing. So, and then I've got another franchise thing on with uh, someone else. And I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of getting into my franchises. So I might have to watch them all just, just to see. Um, but yeah, if anyone's got anything to say about the others, yeah, do let me know. Um, but yeah, that's my little take of Children of the Corn. It's a, it was kind of a fun one to do because it's a bit ridiculous in places. And uh, I think sometimes it's nice to just do a fun one.
easy watching. Anyway, that is uh, my take and I hope you enjoyed it. But I've got a little podcast promo here and that is from uh, The Path Went Chilly. I know one of the girls that does it, that's Jules from Riddle Me That. Uh, so yeah, so have a wee listen and then go check them out. Hi, I'm Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold. If you are unfamiliar with my other podcast, I often cover stories from the television show Unsolved Mysteries. For the past five years, you've heard me talk about these cases on my own, but now's your chance to hear me have in-depth discussions about them with other people. I want to welcome you to my new project, The Path Went Chilly, where I will be discussing in-depth with my two good friends and co-hosts cases that I've covered on The Trail Went Cold. Meet my co-hosts. First one up is Jules. Hi, I'm Jules from the podcast Riddle Me That True Crime, and I have a PhD in transpersonal counseling. I'm not a psychologist or a diagnostician, so don't get too excited. But I can't wait to analyze these cases with these two amazing humans. You've already met Robin. Now meet Dr. Ashley Wellman. Hi, I'm Ashley. I have a PhD in criminology, law and society, and I specialize in trauma victims and survivors. I've spent a great deal of time working with families left behind after homicides with a cold case unit based out of Florida. And I'm also a professor of criminology. I'm so excited to be chatting with two of my best friends about the cases that everyone can't seem to get enough of. We hope in doing so that we will have a clearer perspective of what may have transpired. Oftentimes, Ashley will be totally in the dark. Jules and I will be telling Ashley a story she may not know much about, so all of her reactions are genuine. We will be releasing on all major platforms April 8th. We hope you will join us as we attempt to heat up some ice cold cases. The Pathwind Chili will be available every Thursday on all major podcast platforms. So, yep, go check out The Pathwind Chili and uh, rate and review them on iTunes and Podchaser. And also, thanks for listening here. And don't forget, don't forget to rate and review me on iTunes and Podchaser. And if you want any more updates behind the scenes, you can go to Instagram as Once Upon a Nightmare Podcast, as Twitter as a Nightmare Pod, Facebook as Once Upon a Nightmare, and email as Once Upon a Nightmare Pod at gmail.com. So I will chat to you again next week. Bye. The Pod Breed Network is strictly for the small podcasts that are up and coming in the vast world of podcasting. Pod Breed is made up of many diverse podcasts coming together to achieve the same goal of being the best damn podcast network on the planet. Find out more at podbreed.com.